There is one title that I would like to have given to me more than any other when I come to the end of my life. I will never be referred to in certain, with certain titles, like nobody will ever say at my funeral, Chad the President. You know that because I think that boat has sailed, even though I can't be president for two more years. Vote Chad Harms. But I'll never get that. Chad the General, I'll never have that. Chad the Baseball Player, I'll never have that. Uh, and there's other titles that I like and I think are good that I, some I have, some I don't have, but like Dad or pastor. And these titles, in my mind, fail in comparison to the one title that I would like to have at the end of Chad the... And, and it's the title evangelist. I'm not as passionate as I'd like to be about a lost world, but I'm fairly passionate about... Uh, seeing people know Jesus. And I look around at our world and there are people that I love, that I care about, that I like, uh, that I'm friends with, that are in my family that don't know Jesus. And because of that, I believe that their lives are not what they should be now and that they will spend eternity punished. And so if I got to the end of my life and anybody could just say, Chad the evangelist, then it would be the ultimate success in my mind. Now, uh, I probably will never have that happen, but I hope, I hope that at least I can move towards, you know, being at least somewhat worthy of that title. Now, hopefully you guys are passionate about seeing people know Jesus And hopefully you're becoming more passionate about that as we go through this series, and it's our second series talking about being witnesses, proclaiming the truth of Jesus, helping people understand and know the gospel and accept the gospel. Hopefully there is at least something inside of you because you're a Christian who believes what we believe if you are a Christian. Hopefully there's at least some level of passion to see the people that you know, that you care about, come to know Jesus, the Jesus that you care about and that cares about you. And I hope that there's at least some of that. But maybe some of you, I've never thought about having the title evangelist, but but just being an evangelist is so far outside the thinking of where you could possibly be in your mind that it's never even crossed your mind. You think like, I'll never be called an evangelist. That's not even something that I could fathom. Like when we think of evangelists, we think of Billy Graham. And we think, I'll probably never lead 20,000 people to Jesus at one time. Probably not happening. That's what an evangelist is. But I hope that, that all of us, just a little, have a desire to be such a powerful witness for Jesus that at least at some point somebody might kind of think, well, they're pretty evangelistic, at least, even if they don't give us the title. And so I hope that you are at least a little passionate about leading people to Jesus. And I hope that out of that passion, you would like the title evangelist because you would like to be known as a person who has led people 
people, other people to Jesus. That's what an evangelist does. They are witnesses to the gospel. And usually when we think of evangelists, they're successful witnesses of the gospel. And people, after they have witnessed to the gospel, become Christians because of their witness. And I hope that all of us want that a little, even if we think it's so unfathomable uh, that we've never even really considered it. And today we're going to look at a story that I think gives us hope for getting to our deathbeds and people saying, Chad the Evangelist. But what you need to know up front before we look at the story is that it again points to the fact that we need the supernatural in our witnessing. For far too long in American Christianity, the idea has been if you have the right answers or if you make it simple enough, then you can be an evangelist too. But the reality is, without the work of God, none of us would be evangelists. Without the work of God, Billy Graham would not be an evangelist. And we talked about last week how important the Holy Spirit's movement was in his life, so important that he was on his face begging that God would not take his Holy Spirit from him. And today, we're going to touch on not just the Holy Spirit moving in our lives because we kind of all believe that, but we're going to touch on something that, that treads upon Again, like last week, what some of us would deem weird, what some of us would deem uncomfortable, which, uh, what is sometimes out of our comfort zones, uh, if we've kind of grown up in, in the heritage of this church. And I hope that as we look at this, you're going to see uh, that while it might be weird or foreign or outside of your comfort zone, that there is real value in what we're going to see this morning and that what we'll see, this supernatural kind of movement of God in the evangelistic process, is part of the way that we too can become evangelists. So we're going to look at this story, but we need to start in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, and then we'll pick up the story in verse 26. But when we come to 1 and 2, we see the, the background for this story, the setup for this story. It says, A great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned him deeply. Stephen was killed in Acts chapter 7. That's the story we looked at last week. He was killed for being a prophet, telling what God thought about the situation. His hope was that people would come to know Jesus as their Savior, but instead they killed him. I think it's interesting to note that the people mourned the death of Stephen. And I think it's sad that as American Christians today, we don't mourn the death of martyrs all over the world. Uh, We don't mourn the death of people who are dying instead of rejecting Jesus. We don't mourn the death of people who refuse to shut up when people tell them to because they're telling so many people about Jesus. And we should. We should do that. But the other part is the setup to the story. And that is that after Stephen was killed, Persecution broke out against this, the new church, against this small group of Christians, a couple thousand or so, and all the Christians have to flee the area, except for the apostles, it says for, to us. And so they scatter outside of Jerusalem, and they go into Judea, and they go into Samaria, and I want to point out that what we'll see in the story 
alludes to the fact uh, that I pointed out a couple of weeks ago, and that is when there is persecution against the church, there is opportunity for witnessing. I think that some Christians in our country today have been around long enough to think that that the American Christian way has always been right and good and it's the easiest way. And If we could just go back and have our person in office for president and governor and all that, then it would be easier to witness. And if the media would get on our side, then it would be easier to be a witness. And if, if the morals in our country were more like they used to be, then it would be easier to witness. But what we see in the history of Christianity... And it's pretty good sample size, you know, a couple thousand years now, is that the greatest opportunity for witnessing to the truth of Jesus is always when culture is against Christianity. And here we see a culture that was kind of against Christianity. Eh, don't really like them. They're a weird Jewish sect. That's what they thought about Christians. They're, they're kind of there, but they're not big enough to make a difference. And we'll kind of try to shut them up because we don't like what they're saying to a full-fledged persecution where people are fleeing their city because they fear for their lives. And opportunity springs forth. And there's a man named Philip that we're going to read about in this story who seizes that opportunity. And I want you to pay attention to that idea, seizing opportunity, because that comes up over and over in Acts. Acts 8, 26 says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Philip was not an apostle, so he is kicked out of his city. There is an apostle named Philip, but it's not this Philip. People had the same name back then like they do today, go figure. And so Philip is not one of the apostles. In fact, he's one of the seven men that we talked about a few weeks ago that was promoted to a position of leadership in the church where he was in charge with six other men, one being Stephen, of making sure that the tables were served and that the widows of all ethnicity, all backgrounds, were getting the food they need to stay alive. Philip is one of those guys. And all of a sudden, Philip is removed from his homeland. Now, if you're Philip, got a new job at church, kind of a big deal, people looked at you and said, you're a man full of wisdom in the Holy Spirit, things are looking good, a little bit of leadership responsibility, and you're kicked out of your homeland. The easy response is to just be mad about it. I can't believe that this is taking place. I can't believe that they did this to me. I want to get back at them. Let's win back our culture, you know. Let's make sure that they keep Christ in Christmas. All those types of things. Not Philip's response. Not Philip's response at all. But after our story, it's interesting, Philip kind of disappears from the story of Acts. Paul kind of becomes the the center figure in just a few chapters, and and we see this this movement of God into the Gentile people in just a chapter later. And so Philip just, he's like a big deal right here, and then he disappears until about Acts chapter 21. And in 21.8, this is what it says about this man named Philip who had been promoted to waiting on tables and then kicked out of his homeland, it says, leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed in the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. Now, you have to ask this question, 
Like, how did he get this title? And I believe part of it is just the way that Philip was probably gifted. In the Bible, it describes evangelism as a gift. And you may have known people like that if you're a Christian. They're just gifted to share Jesus with other people. And, and instead of being freaked out and being like, you're weird, or why are you bringing this up, or we don't know each other, or it's just an elevator ride, you know, all those things that, that people are actually responsive. And so you've maybe met people like this where you're like, how did that work? If I would have said those same things, it would have been rejected out outright, but it worked for you. And so I think part of it is that just Philip was was gifted as an evangelist. I think that part of it is, is what we're going to see in our story today. And I think that part of it is what we see at the beginning of chapter 8, right after Philip is kicked out of his homeland. In Acts 8, 4 and 5, it says, then those who had been scattered preached the word everywhere they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah there. Now, if you know nothing about Samaria, let me get you up to speed. Samaria was an area uh, in Judea kind of region, next to Judea, the region of Judea. And it was filled with people who the Jewish people considered half Jews, half breeds. They would have said it in meaner terms than that. And so the Jewish people whom Philip is one, hated the Sumerians. Okay, you with me? Like so much so that they would have used racist titles about them. They, they actually went all the way around Samaria, even if it was a straighter line to travel through Samaria because they didn't want to encounter Samarians. They, shouldn't have they didn't want to talk to them. They didn't like them. They looked at them and thought, you're tearing our, our religion down and our ethnicity down and you are the bad people. And Philip gets kicked out of his homeland He's got a giant world. And he goes directly for the place that nobody else wanted to go. Now, here's the, here's the cool part about this story right here. Uh, Jesus goes to Samaria in John chapter 4. He meets a woman at the well. I would just highly recommend you read that story if you have never read that story before. Just open your Bibles later today and read John chapter 4. But Jesus goes there and, and he talks about himself being the Messiah and all those things. But other than that, there's no record of any person having taken the gospel post-Jesus' resurrection. There's no reference to the gospel being taken to Samaria. And if you remember the words in our video or the words in the passage that we have taken from the video, Jesus declares to his disciples right before he goes up into heaven, you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Philip is kicked out of his homeland. Instead of sulking, you know what he does? He says, I'm going to take quite literally Jesus' words and I'm going to make sure that they take place. We have spread the gospel in Jerusalem and Judea and I will go to Samaria and I will do exactly what Jesus has told me to do. I think being an evangelist starts with taking what Jesus has declared, his final words, very, very seriously. Philip's like... Well, I'm kicked out of my homeland. What should I do? Well, Jesus said, we'll go from Judea to Samaria. So I better go to Samaria and not just find a nice little beach place to live while I'm removed from my homeland. See, most of us, 
When life kicks us down, we don't think about opportunity. We don't think about fulfilling the words of Jesus. We don't take him at his word and say, that's the most important thing. That's what you said as you left. We just kind of think, eh, if I get around to being a witness, I'll get around to being a witness. But Philip gains the term evangelist in part because he took the words of Jesus so seriously. I think that the first step maybe in being an evangelist is saying, I'm going to be an evangelist. I'm not going to leave it up to somebody else who's on TV or who fills stadiums. I'm going to be a part of it. You know how easy it would have been for Philip to say, we got a lot of famous people in here, uh, in this religion. I mean, I'll call Peter. I'll call the other Philip, you know. I'll call one of those guys and they can take care of this because they're the apostles. It's their job. Philip is a guy that's in charge of leading. The push to have tables served gets kicked out of his land and says, I'm an evangelist and I will do what Jesus has called us to do. And then in Acts 8.12 it says, when they believed Philip, As he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Now, in that same section right there, just the next verse, or the verse before, excuse me, it says that Philip was seeing miracles take place around him. And there's two things that I cannot stress enough in this series as far as us as a church goes, and that's this. If we are going to be witnesses, good witnesses, then we must be close to Jesus. You can't just decide I'm going to be a witness and actually have the power of God behind you. You must have an intimate relationship with God. And we'll see this come through clearly in this passage. Philip was so close to Jesus that Jesus was doing miracles through him. And so when he showed up on the scene and proclaimed the good news of Jesus, people were like, wow, sick people are being healed. You're telling me this. I should believe. And the other part is, that Philip was willing to proclaim the good news. We've talked about this. You have to get to the point where you tell people the story of Jesus, preferably, I think, the story of Jesus and how it interacts and intersects with your story. You can't be a witness without ever telling somebody the gospel message that Jesus came to earth, lived a sinless life, died on a cross, and then rose again three days later so that people may have their sins removed and spend eternity in heaven. This idea of friendship evangelism has its merit. You're friends with people, but the problem with it is, and it was big in the 90s, is that you can be friends with somebody 30 years and never actually do any evangelism, but make yourself kind of feel good for doing friendship. Well, I'm friends with that non-Christian. The world doesn't need another friend It needs somebody to tell them the story of Jesus. And so Philip is not only close to God, he's close to God and it results in miracles and Philip is willing to proclaim the good news. And I would remind you one more time that the world wants us to think that the gospel story is bad news and that we're jerks for sharing it and that we're mean for trying to shove our religion down people's throat, but over and over and over again in the Bible. In fact, a word is is basically created 
to describe the story of Jesus and the word means good news. The story of Jesus is always good news and when you share it, when you proclaim it to others, you are not doing something that's jerky. You're not doing something that's mean. You're doing the only right and good thing for that person. Do not buy into the lie that says if you tell somebody truth that they don't like, then it's the wrong thing to do. People may not like our gospel, but it is the good news, the best news that has ever been delivered. And so in Acts 27, 28, Philip is obedient to what the angel tells him. Go down to this road. It's not in a way, it's south. It's not the direction that he needed to go. But Philip is obedient to this. And this is what we read. So he started out. And on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Kandakai, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. Philip was obedient to what God called him to do. And this is what I think is true If we are obedient to God, even if it seems weird, even if it seems crazy, then what we read in this story can be duplicated in our own lives. You see, the problem is that we've tried to make God make too much sense to us. And so when God tells us something that doesn't make sense, we think, well, that must be wrong. There must be, uh, God must fit kind of our American dream, we believe. But Philip is told to go to a road in the desert that doesn't even make sense. In fact, Gaza, the road, this road that connects between the the place that is connected by this road, Gaza, has just recently been kind of destroyed. So it's like, hmm, going down to a road that is no longer connected to the place that it was intended to be connected to. Eh, Sure, I'll go. When we are obedient to God, even when it doesn't make sense, this type of story can be duplicated in our lives. And now we get to the title of the sermon, Philip has a power encounter. I'm sorry I couldn't come up with something better than that, uh, but it's good enough. Philip has a power encounter with this Ethiopian eunuch. And we see it kind of hinted at right at the beginning because this Ethiopian eunuch has gone down to Jerusalem to worship God. Ethiopians didn't worship our God. And so this man has some interest in this religion called Judaism. And on the way back from that worship experience, and by the way, a worship experience he could never have entered fully into because he wasn't a Jew and he was a eunuch. And so, meaning a person that basically uh, had been prevented from having relationship with women so that they didn't sleep with the queen. That's pretty much what that is. Uh, I said that in the nicest way I could possibly say that. And so, he can't enter into deep levels of worship with God in Jewish people's minds because he is deformed and he's not a Jew. And so he travels to Jerusalem for a half worship experience. And on the way back, he's reading from this book of Isaiah. And at the same time, at the same time, God is sending Philip to this road that seems to be leading nowhere. I believe if we're obedient to God and we keep our eyes open and we're close to God in the first place, then God will lead us to more and more power encounters. 
And I believe that if we start to take seriously what God wants to do through us, then our eyes would be opened to these power encounters. I told this story about my grandparents' neighbor and how I saw him walking his dog. I've known the man forever as far as my life is concerned. Not very well, but I saw him walking his dog not that long ago when I was leaving my grandma's house in the car. And it's just like the Holy Spirit said to me, go talk to that guy about me. And I just battled it like, eh, you know, just a weird thought, you know, and got all the way home, didn't do it. And so then every time I went to my grandma's for like four months, I was uncomfortable. I felt weird. I felt like I had blown it. And so then, and, and I told this part of the story in a, a couple of series ago, but then I just like forced it another time. I walked up to him, mm, God loves you. I think he wants me to tell you. So, okay. Bye. You know, talk to my grandma if you want to know more. And went like that. And, and it went just about that well. And his response was about what you can imagine from that great pitch of the gospel right there. It wasn't a power encounter. I think that I missed the power encounter when God told me to be obedient to him while he was walking his dog and I wasn't. So not very long ago, when we had gone over to the coast, we were at the outlet malls in Old Navy, and all of a sudden, I get that same voice in my head, and I don't like it. I want to be an evangelist, but I don't want to have to deal with the whole evangelism thing, you know? If I could just, hey, you, Christian, you know, and it, that would be easier for me, but I get that same voice, and it's some completely random human being that I've never seen before in my life. And it started like this. This is crazy, I know, but I told you it touches on like the things we're uncomfortable with. I had a deja vu about a man that I've never seen before standing in an old Navy at the coast. That's not possible in my logical mind. You can't have a deja vu about something you've never seen before. Can you? Unless we're living in the matrix and then it's just a little bit of a glitch and then it all makes logical sense. But it's not possible. So I'm like, how could I have ever seen this man in a dream before? And then God just is like, somewhere in me, talk to him about me. So again, I walk up to the man. I say, I don't do this kind of thing. I always lead with that. I'm not sure if that's just a fear thing or I want to look good or safe face. I don't do this kind of thing. But I want you to know that God loves you, and I'm a Christian. Yo. You know, and it's just, that was like, hey. A shockingly positive response. I would love to say that it ended up with him crying and becoming a Christian. It wasn't. But the man was touched. I don't know why. I don't know how. He said he was a Christian. Uh, I got the feeling that, and I don't know, it's just, again, maybe the Holy Spirit making me discerning. I got the feeling that, that, that he kind of was a Christian by name, but that he hadn't really thought about God or Jesus in a long time. And it seemed like something valuable had taken place in his life, unlike the situation with my grandma's neighbor. And I think the difference was that I was obedient one, and two, that God had aligned that moment for that purpose so that I could say something to this man. I don't know what it meant. I don't know why it was important to him, but that we could have that moment, whereas the other one, I missed the moment, 
and tried to force a moment myself. And I believe that God wants you to be so close to him that he can speak in your ear and you have go, okay, you want me to talk to that person? Where you can discern the voice of God like we talked about last week. And I believe that if you get close to God, then God will say them, there, now. You've been friends with this person long enough. Say something to them about me. And if you will choose to be obedient, then I think you can have power encounters like God is setting up in the life of Philip. And I think it was Philip's closeness to God combined with his willingness to be obedient to God that led to him having the title evangelist despite never speaking to 50,000 people at a time. The story continues in Acts 8.29. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. It's again a weird request by God. I'm supposed to go stand next to the guy's car? I mean, can you imagine seeing a car going down the road in your neighborhood and it stops at the stop sign and God says, go stand by it. Like, I'm going to get shot. Do you know where, do you know when we live? You know, this is the request that God gives him. This is the request. And I know that oftentimes God makes requests that don't make any sense. And I thought about some people that I have known, some stories and my missiology professor, I tell his stories all the time. He had like four stories and he told them every day in class. I didn't learn a thing about missiology, but I learned a lot about Bob Wright. Uh, great professor, great man. But he said, I knew, him and his wife, I know that God wants us to go to Brazil to be missionaries. And people would say to him, I could never leave my family. And Bob Wright in class would say, yeah, and I hate mine. You know, his point was, I was simply being obedient. It didn't make sense to the American way, to the logic of kind of raising a family, you know, with your family around, all the stuff that we think we need to do. It didn't make sense in those ways. I had no problem with my family. He's not like a guy that couldn't have been a successful minister in America. He could have done great pastoral work here, but he knew God was telling him to go to Brazil, and he went anyway. We talked about Elizabeth Elliot a few weeks ago, but her husband, Jim Elliot, who was killed by native people. I mean, think about that. Hey, I mean, can you imagine hearing this voice? Hey, you, this is God talking. Hey, you, I want you to go to a place where they don't speak English and we're not sure if they like outsiders and they may kill you and I want you to tell them about me. Like, well, they don't speak my language. I might get killed. How's this all going to work? Jim Elliott went, he was killed, and his wife went back and led that whole tribe to Jesus. That's a power encounter. That's God saying, you're going to be here because they're going to be here and you're going to tell them about me. My sister-in-law right over here, Ashley, uh, did some, some crazy charismatic stuff not long ago and she went down to the Salem House of Prayer and, and they do these things called scavenger hunts, which to our kind of non-charismatic background, it's weird. But basically they, they pray and they say, God, just tell us things about 
a person that you want us to have a power encounter with. Tell us things about them. And so then they just try to listen to the Holy Spirit and they start writing things down as it comes to them and hopefully in their spirits and not just their minds. Write them down, write them down, write them down. And then they walk around and they look for a person and the details in which the encounter, the person they encountered had and that God had spoken to them were not very likely if it wasn't the power of God moving and saying, I want you to have a power encounter with these people. Here's what I kind of think. I think the idea of power encounter is foreign to us. It's not something that we experience in our kind of Christian circles very often because we're not open to them and we're not looking for them and even when we have them, we fail to recognize them. Uh, But I believe if you have your eyes open and you're close to God, then you can have these types of encounters. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. He runs to the chariot Now, I just gave my story, full disclosure. I dreaded walking up to the man. I tried to find every sail I could find in Old Navy to be like, well, I'm going to need that for another sermon, you know. And I mean, I just did everything to be as slow as possible walking up to the man. But Philip becomes an evangelist because he has an opportunity, a power encounter, and he doesn't go, oh boy, I got to deal with this. He goes, God is leading me to share him with somebody and I will go now. I don't know if the running is because he wants to be so obedient to God or it's because he's so excited about the opportunity, but either way, it's different than what I experience and what I do. And this guy's reading, this is incredible, he's reading Isaiah. I told this story in our last series on evangelism too. I sat down at Starbucks and I literally see a man reading his Bible while I'm preaching, while I'm studying, studying literally for a sermon on telling people about Jesus. And I chicken out and don't even say anything to me. Now, I've seen this man again and I've talked to him and he's a Christian and uh, we kind of know each other now. Uh, But what if he wasn't a Christian and he was just sitting there reading from the book of Isaiah going, I wonder what this means. If only somebody would explain it to me. I would have missed an incredible opportunity to share Jesus with that person. And Philip doesn't because he runs up to that chariot and immediately without hesitation, he jumps right in and says, do you understand what you are reading? I would point out that when you have a power encounter, starting with a question might be a great idea. I think if I could go back to Old Navy, I would start with this, like, are you a Christian? Or do you know that God loves you? Or something along those lines. I didn't have a lot of time to plan, but I would start with a question because I think questions soften people immediately. And if they have a question back, they'll ask it. The story continues. How can I, he said unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before his shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? 
Now, most people can understand the Bible in at least a little bit, and the Gideons will tell stories. The guys that hands out the Bible, the guys that hand out the Bibles, will will tell you stories about giving a Bible to a person, and they become Christians, and it changes their lives. But the reality is, sometimes people need some explanatory notes on the Bible. That's why I preach. But it's also where you can come in in the evangelistic process. I thought of three ways that you can kind of explain to somebody what the Bible means. And it doesn't mean that you need to be a Bible scholar to have some ability to explain. Like, I think at certain points you do just need to be able to say, you know what that means? Or do you know that that passage in Isaiah that you're thinking about actually points to Jesus? And it's one of the reasons I'm a Christian is because thousands of years before Jesus lived, it described what he was doing what he would do almost perfectly. I think sometimes we need explanation like that. But sometimes we just need to explain the Bible by pointing out some key Christian things. We talked about memorizing some verses last week, but sometimes we just need to point people in the right direction. I mean, can you imagine if you had not grown up in a church? Maybe that's you, but just imagine it with me. And, and people are like, here's the deal. I want you to know about Jesus. Read your Bible. Like, okay, Genesis, wow, that's really interesting. Exodus, crazy. Like, can't believe they went across that water. Leviticus. What does this have to do with Jesus? Like, honey, I have this mole, you know, and I think I think that my neighbor wants me to figure out how to remove the mole or something. I mean, that's what Leviticus is filled with. What if you could just like come to your, your friend and be like, hey. Try reading this section in the Bible because it spoke to me in this way. Wouldn't that be some explanation? Here's the other part of how I think we can explain the Bible to people. Just talk about how it's impacted you. Say, here's the deal. Jesus brings joy. Here's how I have joy. Here's the deal. Jesus removed sin. Well, I used to have this sin, this thing that I had done, and I felt guilty forever and ever and ever and ever, and then I prayed, and then I became a Christian, and, and all of a sudden, I felt comfort and forgiveness and peace about it. You could explain the Bible in that way. I just wonder, are you ready to explain Christianity to somebody if you have a power encounter. You don't have to be perfect in your explanation. You don't even have to be great in your explanation. But you do need to have an answer ready for those who ask about what Christianity is, what Christianity can do for them, why you believe in Christianity, all those things. And then Philip began with the very passage of Scripture and told him the, again, good news about Jesus. The story of Jesus is good news, and I already said this, but I want to say it again. Don't let the world tell you you're a jerk for being a witness. The story finishes like this. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared to Azotus and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns 
until he reached Caesarea. This guy becomes a Christian. And this guy is filled with joy because of his Christianity. Now, I want you to think about this man's place in life. He is a man who has some power, but he works under the queen. He's been mutilated so that he can have that position. He knows that his religion and his country is not quite right, but as he searches Judaism, he finds that they won't really let him into the club. And so he's once again rejected. Think about what this guy probably dreamed at some point in his life growing up and having a family. And you'll notice if you go back and read that the Isaiah passage talks about the descendants. And all of a sudden, this man has his sins forgiven. I'm sure that Philip told him, you can have a personal relationship with God. You don't even need to go back to the temple because you can interact with him right here. He tells him, you can be part of a family now because God will adopt you as his son and you have brothers and sisters all over this great world. And this man is pumped. Like, baptize me now because I'm so pumped about what God has allowed me to come into. I hope that all of us want our friends our families, and even the strangers who God wants us to have a power encounter with, to know the hope and the peace and the love and the forgiveness and the joy that we have as Christians. If you've lost that joy, get it back. Because one of the reasons, one of the reasons I want people to know Jesus is is that I, I have joy all the time. In my worst moments, and my family can attest to this almost to a fault, I still have joy. I don't think I've ever gone through a funeral without finding something at least kind of funny. I don't think, and I've been through funerals, I have dealt with very bad pain. I don't think I've ever gone through a hard time in life where I haven't remembered and clung to and hoped in the joy that Jesus has brought me. Brent and I, my wife right back there at the back table, in our marriage have been through more hard things than a lot of people will go through in their whole lives. And we still have a heck of a good time together. And it's not because we're always having fun. It's because we have the joy of Jesus. And I look around at this broken, dying world. And I know people who when they have just a kind of bad day, they are distraught and it ruins them because their whole lives are driven by what the world tells them about themselves and how successful they are here. And I want more power encounters so that I can say, you can have my joy. Because it's the joy of Jesus. I have non-Christian relatives in this world. And you know one of the things I pray for them? God, let them meet a Christian that they respect and like so that that person can tell them about you. What I want for the non-Christian friends and family that I have around this country is for them to have power encounters. And you know how they can have power encounters? If Christians will draw close to God so that they can hear his voice, they'll be obedient to him even when it doesn't make sense, and they'll have the guts to share the good news knowing that it is good news. There's probably people all over the country whose family members have moved to Portland and the surrounding areas. And they're praying, God, let them meet a Christian who will tell them about you. And tomorrow you might walk into Starbucks with them. 
And if you're not ready, then that person's prayers will not be, will not be a yes. It won't be a yes to them because you failed, not because God failed. So remember, to be close to God, be obedient to him. Look for power encounters. Look for him. Be open to him. And then share the good news. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you that you've been working on me in in this regard, Lord, that you've helped me to at least have my eyes open to these things, even if I want to run from them, despite theologically and um, even mentally wanting to have them, God. And I pray that you would do that work in all of us who are Christians. God, uh, the world needs our joy. The world needs our hope. The world needs our eternal life. And Lord, I, I don't think there is a more foolproof witnessing technique, God, than an encounter that you have divinely set up, God. I pray, Lord, that this week and every week moving forward, the people in our church would just walk around looking and listening for opportunities. I pray that our people, God, would be so close to you that it's not abnormal for you to say, talk to them. And then I pray that you would give us the courage to talk, the courage to share your love, the courage to tell people about how great you have been to them and how great you are, Lord. Jesus, as I was thinking yesterday, Lord, um, you declare that you want every person to come to you. And God, I just can't help but believe that some haven't because we haven't been ready for an encounter with them. I pray that we would be a church that doesn't turn our backs to things that seem charismatic but we remember that you are God and nothing is impossible for you. Even setting up encounters on a desert road, desert road that leads to nowhere, Lord. Uh, make us a people who share your word, God, by proclaiming it. Make us a people who spread your word, God, by serving. Make us a people who spread your word, God, by being your voice and make us a people who spread your word, Lord, by being willing to share your truth when you lead us to divine encounters, even with strangers. I pray these things in your name. Amen.